1: Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Scout the mites, Lane here. Welcome to episode twelve of Batman books: The Dark Knight in prose, where the only pictures are those formed in the imagination. In part three today, we will cover chapters five and six of Batman: The Ultimate Evil by Andrew Vax. Thank you for joining me today. I hope everyone's doing well. So, a kind of a cool thing happened on Twitter when the Batman universe released episode eleven of Dark Knight in prose. Who should comment on that tweet but the man himself, Mr. Andrew Vax. He said, This add anything to the conversation? And he gave me a link to one of his web pages regarding child sex trafficking in Thailand. A side note for the rest of this book, I'll post that link that he sent on the show notes. I replied to him, Hello, I'm honored that you commented. I was going to hold on to the link until later in the book, but I changed that decision. And I finished with, Many thanks. He replied, Thank you. I write for openly disclosed reasons. Actually, one reason. So I especially treasure all forms of word of mouth. So, yeah, very cool. Another exciting thing happened last week. Well, exciting for me anyway. I bought a PS4 Pro. The original plan was to wait until my birthday in August, but some sort of switch was flipped in my brain, and I decided I needed one ASAP. A local gaming shop had a used one, thankfully, so I got a little bit of a discount. It also had a sale where you could get two pre-owned games for a discount. I made with the grabby hands and bought Spider-Man, which I've heard great things about. And, you guessed it, Arkham Knight. I left the store financially bruised, but when I turned on Arkham Knight for the first time, any hint of buyer's remorse just melted away. Honestly, I'm shocked. Shocked, I say, that I managed to get anything else accomplished during that first weekend. Too bad the PS4 isn't backwards compatible. I had flashbacks from the days of yore where if I wanted to play my Nintendo 64 instead of the GameCube... I'd have to begin the process of unplugging one and plugging the other one in. And usually that involved, you know, reaching behind the TV where the light was dim and trying to find out, is that the white feed or the yellow feed? Anyway, so when it came to switching between my PS3 and my PS4, I had, I guess, accepted as a foregone conclusion that I'd be doing the same type of switch, just in HDMI form but then I realized there are multiple HDMI ports on TVs nowadays. There's room for both PS3 and PS4 in my life. I'm so happy. But yeah, I've been having a blast playing Arkham Knight, of course. All right, um, let me shut up now so that we can dive into Chapter 5, which starts on page 35, by the way. Chapter 5, Scene 1. Eight nights later, at the end of a 10-hour shift... Bruce Wayne and Deborah Kane sat across from each other in a back booth of the otherwise unnamed open all-night diner. Deborah was on her third cup of black coffee. Bruce was still nursing his first glass of tea. Is it always like this? he asked. His face, usually a fleshy mask of blandness, was creased with a pain he had seen so many times in the past several nights. Sure, it gets more or less intense depending on a whole lot of things, but this is about normal. Normal? being beaten by a drunk, whipped with an electric cord, scalded down to third-degree burns, left alone for four days with nothing to eat except dry cereal, sodomized by an uncle, all of that and more, Deborah said. We learn that Deborah dropped the Mr. Wayne days ago, while yelling at him to call an ambulance for the baby who had been shaken into permanent brain damage. The rest of the scene is dialogue-heavy, and while the subject matter is dark— It's a good time for... Rest in peace, Theodore, is proud to present That Time Bruce Wayne Confuses Sick with Sickening Special Guest Star, Chris
0: Remember the first case I went on with you? You said it was a Category 1 case, remember? Yes. What are the other categories?
1: Do you remember the one on Baxter Street?
0: Yes. How could I forget? That woman was insane. Imagine, thinking she could bake the devilment out of the little child and... Put
1: him in the oven to do it? That's category two. Crazy. Genuinely crazy. Like paranoid schizophrenia, or obsessive-compulsive, or any other diagnosis you want. Can you do anything with them? With some, sure. With others, no way.
0: The man in the nice apartment. The one right off the drive? Yes. He was Category 2 then, yes?
1: No, Bruce. No, he wasn't.
0: But incest? I mean, with his own daughter, his own little girl, are you telling me that isn't sick?
1: That's just what I am telling you. Like most people who have never seen it firsthand, you have sick confused with sickening. What you saw there was classic Category 3. People who hurt children for their own pleasure, and their own profit.
0: But... I'm confused. He said he... Loved her, and he was just...
1: Love? (laughs) Sure. He loved that child. The same way he would love a good steak. For the pleasure it gives him. Nothing else. That poor little girl will carry that ugly weight the rest of her life... It doesn't matter what laws you choose to govern your life. They could be the laws of God, the laws of nature, or the laws of mankind. Incest violates them all. It's not sick, Bruce. It's evil. With that, Deborah abruptly rises from the table and leaves. Bruce pays the check and joins her outside. By now, her face is composed. She apologizes, but says she can't talk about that subject any more tonight. Bruce asks if he can come along again. Again, this surprises Deborah, but she nods her assent. They get into the car and head back toward the CPS agency. My notes? I have pre-recorded like, where I kind of introduce you, but do you want to go ahead and do it in your own words? Introduce yourself and tell us uh, where people can find you?
0: Well, thank you very much, Lane. You can find me on Twitter at BTO and Batbooks. I can be heard on the Chris's Cornucopia of Curiosity segment on the Batgirl the Oracle podcast hosted by the knowledgeable Stella. That's where I'm reviewing the title Batman Adventures, a comic book based on the 90s animated TV series, and everybody's favorite segment within a segment, Nightwatch, where I review the current Nightwing title from a shipper's perspective. And I also advise of any shipper alerts. New episodes drop every month. I can also be found on the Bat Books for Beginners podcast that I co-host with my talented friend Jerry. And that's where we review trade paperbacks involving Batman and or related characters. New episodes of that podcast drop every other Friday. Jerry and I can also be heard on the Professor Frenzy Show. That's where we spotlight and talk about the previous week's independent comic book releases and mention new releases and comic book related items that we think deserve some attention. New episodes of that podcast drop every Wednesday. Thank you.
1: A big thank you to Chris for being the first guest star on Rest in Peace Theater. As for this scene, more information about the world of CPS. Thankfully, we only hear of the darker visits through Bruce and Deborah's conversation rather than actually see what they witnessed via narrative. It actually ties in perfectly with a tweet Andrew Vax sent out just a few days ago on May 29th, 2019. I have to tone down the books because people would throw them away in revulsion. It would be like saying that they can come read my files. They wouldn't want to do that. I try to see myself as a journalist. The only criticism I will not abide in reviews is that this stuff is not true. Chapter 5, Scene 2 They wouldn't let him sleep. The children gnawed at the edge of his consciousness, scraping his nerve endings raw, challenging his sense of justice. Bruce Wayne couldn't take it. The Batmobile shot out of its underground bunker an Avenger's arrow seeking a target. Behind the cowl, the Batman's eyes smoldered. His jaw was locked into a flat-mouthed grimace, but his breathing was slow and controlled. The Batmobile ran on its shrouded lower lights as it glided through traffic. The driver of an 18-wheeler felt the ominous shape slip by, but before he could crane his neck to look closer, the night shark had vanished, leaving only the turbine's mournful whistle in its wake. It's only the wind. The trucker comforted himself, suppressing an involuntary shudder. And maybe it was. A dangerous wind for those who walked on the wrong side of the law. Batman checks his view screen and punches in the coordinates for the Excelsior, an uptown luxury building owned by Wayne Enterprises. Finding the way clear, he flicks a switch, opening the door to the building's underground garage, and drives through. Instead of parking, the Batmobile drives toward the back wall. A slot opens. Batman and his vehicle are now in a secret elevator that takes them to a sub-basement. It is entirely dark. Batman climbs out of the Batmobile and feels along the wall until his fingers touch a flat button. It opens a smaller door, and he steps through into a one-man elevator. As soon as he closes the door, it shoots upward, opening only when it reaches the roof of the Excelsior, just inside a giant greenhouse maintained by the occupant of the penthouse suite. Nobody ever saw that occupant. Only maids, gardeners, the occasional caterer. The other tenants of the building didn't ask direct questions. Such conduct is considered beneath the dignity of the city's elite, but there are still whispered questions that bring no answers of substance. As you might have guessed, the building is one of Batman's strike bases. The Batmobile could appear or disappear. The rooftop gives him plenty of access to the city, If he is injured, there is a full complement of medical and surgical supplies, as well as a panic button that would bring Alfred on the run. Now, it is time to hunt. My notes? The scene basically just sets up the existence of the penthouse strike base. I'm assuming he could have done all this research in the Batcave, so maybe something important will happen in the penthouse later. I made a note from the beginning of the chapter when he talks of the nerve endings being scraped raw and that Bruce Wayne couldn't take it. Bruce Wayne can't take it, so he becomes Batman, someone who can take it and try to do something about it. I'm not sure if that was intentional or not, but if so, it's a nice subtle nod toward the two very different halves of our favorite Gothamite. Or maybe I'm reaching. That's possible too. I also love the part of the truck driver really only feeling the Batmobile slip by, but it's so fast and so camouflaged in darkness that the driver thinks it must have just been the wind. I absolutely love that little detail. And it's sort of how the tenants of the Excelsior can feel that there's something off about the penthouse, but they can't quite figure out what it is. There was even a mention of the place being haunted by ghosts. The idea of a one-man elevator is a bit claustrophobic to me, and I'm not someone who considers myself very claustrophobic. My brain went straight to, but what if there's a malfunction? He'd be stuck there forever. But it's Batman. Not only does he have a calm link with Alfred at all times, but he'd probably easily get through the top of the elevator car and then make his way onward from there, either using a grappling hook or just kind of shimmying up the walls. He can get out of there. It's fine. Me, on the other hand, I'd probably be found decades later by a geocacher. Chapter 5, Scene 3 The apartment was right off Gotham Drive, just inside the diamond spine of the great city. The Batman watched from one rooftop away, watched the light go off as the apartment dropped into darkness. Something he didn't understand pulled him magnetically to that spot. He knew who lived there. The incest offender who told Deborah Kane how much he loved his little girl. But what was he doing? A tiny red dot popped into view. The Batman narrowed his gaze across the gap. Yes, a cigarette. The child's father was out on his balcony, looking down at the city, enjoying a last smoke before going to bed. Going to bed with... The Batman felt a trembling inside his chest, a hot, burning sensation behind his eyes. How easy it would be to just... No, he said to himself. I took an oath. The authorities already know about him. I can't just... The crime fighter stayed at his perch rooted as though turned into petrified wood, standing long after the creature had finished his cigarette and gone inside. After the man disappears into the apartment, Batman again whispers aloud, It's not enough. Twenty minutes later, he takes out his frustration on a burglar, who was just making his way out of an apartment window with a bag of loot over his shoulder. Batman tells him, Drop it. The burglar mutters, I'm not going back to prison and pulls a pistol from his coat. That, of course, is not a good idea. Batman knocks the gun from the burglar's hand. The burglar dives for it, misses, begins to fall. Batman instantly dives forward, sliding on his stomach, grabbing for the burglar's foot as he disappears over the edge. Batman's slide takes his upper body past the edge of the roof, but he's too late. The falling man screams, his last words a curse. The Batman pulls himself back to the roof and feels, deep in his soul, a tremor that is new to him. He doesn't like the feeling. My notes? You can almost feel how badly Batman wants to destroy the man with the cigarette. But he manages to walk away. Lucky for the Category 3 man, unlucky for the burglar. At first I was really confused on the scene with the burglar. It mentioned him being a second story man... And I was like, well, how is he falling to his death so far below? I don't understand. And then I had a an inspiration, and I did an internet search for the term second story man. And apparently a second story man is a burglar who enters through upper story windows, not necessarily just the second story. So who knows how high they are up on the roof. Second story man, I learned something new. Fun Facts for Chapter 5 The advantages of having a turbine engine include 1. A very high power-to-weight ratio compared to reciprocating engines. 2. A smooth rotation of the main shaft produces far less vibration than a reciprocating engine. Disadvantages. Less efficient than reciprocating engines at idle speed. The Batmobile doesn't idle. That does it for Chapter 5. We'll take our promo break here, and when we come back, we'll start Chapter 6. Stay tuned.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Pax, and I'm your host for I Read Movies, the podcast all about movie novelizations. Every month, I read a classic movie or TV novelization and get on here and discuss it with you. I talk about who wrote it, I talk about when it came out, I run down all the changes, additions, and oddities featured in the book compared to the movie or TV show that is novelized. I've covered such classic novelizations as the original Indiana Jones trilogy, Back to the Future, Gremlins, The Lost Boys, Predator, Jaws the Revenge, and Lethal Weapon. Do you want to know about the nuclear bomb strike and Back to the Future? Or how about all the Voodoo in Jaws the Revenge, or the mini Cannonball run that happens in Lethal Weapon. I talk about all these things each month on the I Read Movies podcast. I read these books so you don't have to. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google. Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. One is the man of tomorrow, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader. Carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile. Let's go. Up, up,
1: and Atomic Matters.
0: Man celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at GreatKrypton.com.
1: Welcome back, folks. Chapter 6 starts on page 43, so let's dive in. Chapter 6, Scene 1, it's a short one. Alfred. Bruce Wayne said the next day. Would you call up the current whereabouts program on the computer? Certainly, Master Bruce. Do we have a subset? Yes. Try convicts in custody first. It's a much quicker run. Whatever you say, sir. But wouldn't... The man I'm looking for will still be inside? Bruce Wayne gently interrupted. No doubt about it. May I ask who? The middle man. I'm sure you are correct, Master Bruce. Let me run a check, and I'll be back to you with a printout in just a short time. Thanks, Alfred. Not at all, the faithful Alfred replied. His face a study in serenity. a face that effectively hid a growing sense of unease about the man who only came alive as the Batman. My notes? ah, Alfred. What would we do without you? I mean, seriously, he he can run all the computer systems Bruce throws at him. He can remotely fly the Batwing... He presses suits immaculately, takes all of Bruce's calls, and sets up all the appointments, administers first aid when Bruce is injured, and I bet he can make a grilled cheese sandwich with tomato soup. Alfred, what can't you do? But he knows Bruce better than anyone else in the world, so a growing sense of unease on his part is definitely something worth noting. The next scene is quite long, and it finishes off the chapter, there's a couple of places i'm going to read because uh, a lot of information is packed in chapter 6 scene 2 hellgate prison was a little more than a 2 hour drive from the modern glitter of gotham in appearance however it was light years away resting in a natural valley surrounded by gently rolling hills it resembled nothing so much as a giant meteor that had slammed into the earth with sufficient force to create a depression Restricted only to those criminals considered extremely dangerous, or an escape risk, Hellgate was the garbage can of the criminal justice system, a max-max institution without pretense. Hellgate was a cage, a cage for beasts. At ground level, a visitor would see only the huge ornamental iron gate that originally gave the prison its name. As if to emphasize that this was the only way out of the huge, glowering prison, the gate was set between massive stone walls, Four feet thick and twenty feet high, the walls dominated the eye and symbolized the reality. Those inside were shut away from society as completely as any exile. From his vantage point atop one of the surrounding hills, Batman peers inside with a scope that he sets to night vision. On wide angle, the scope shows the coils of razor wire on top of the walls. There are guard towers with sharpshooters. At the outer base of the walls is an artificial moat filled with specially trained canine units. There has not been a successful escape from Hellgate Prison in twenty years, though almost three hundred attempts have been made. With few exceptions, all were captured before they could scale the wall. The exceptions were taken down by the sharpshooters. During Batman's life dedicated to crime fighting, he learned that even if surveillance, mastery of the underworld slang, and network on informants were used to their fullest, One final step was needed to have a sufficient tactical edge, the ability to think like a criminal. It was that ability, more than any other, which made the Batman the most convincing and successful undercover operative ever known to penetrate the underworld. In his mind, Batman became a criminal, thinking as a desperate convict, looking through a convict's eyes. I can't get over that wall. Even if I could get past the gun towers... Even if I could get through the razor wire, the dogs would eat me alive. How would he get out? Bribery? Corruption? Blackmail? Possible, but not a sure thing. Parole? Commutation? Pardon? (laughs) Fat chance. Then an idea hits. Batman snaps out of his convict's persona, and his mind immediately refocuses to the hunt. He taps buttons in the Batmobile and a message appears at the bottom right of the screen. Probe sonar engagement in progress. Please wait. A panel opens at the rear of the Batmobile. From it, a tiny black tube launches into the night, where it pops open flexible metallic wings. It glides toward the prison. Triangulation in progress. Please wait. On the screen, an image of the prison appears. Three dots on the grid represent the three probes. After Batman carefully makes some adjustments using a joystick, the message on screen shows Triangulation in place. Select dimension. A series of computer commands soon show a diagram of the prison in profile. The three sonar probes converge to show him an ultrasound image of the ground below. His suspicion is confirmed. A deep tunnel runs beneath Hellgate Prison, beginning somewhere in the hospital wing, running parallel to the prison, and then veering left heading for the back wall. Batman determines the tunnel to be only 12 feet short of the wall. Estimate. Time needed to complete tunnel. 600 to 1,900 man-hours. Depending on variables such as weather conditions, implements used, and the individual strengths of the diggers. Batman muses that no matter how many prisoners are in on the tunnel plot, only one or two can dig at any one time. Potential escapees will be waiting for a long time for the tunnel to be finished. But Hellgate is anything but short on time. He brings up information on Sylvester Sistrick, a.k.a. the middleman. Penal law offenses. Criminal solicitation. Conspiracy. Criminal facilitation. Theft. Forgery. Fraud. Gambling offenses. Prostitution offenses. Disposal of stolen property. Money laundering. Open prostitution offenses. One Martin de Spain a known pimp with five prior felony convictions, obtained a license to operate a fitness gym. In fact, the premises were used as a massage parlor. Most of the information furnished on the license application was fictitious. Sistrick arranged a meeting between Despain and Charles Montaigne, an employee of Gotham Licensing Board. Despain bribed Montaigne. The license was granted. It was later discovered that Sister was paid $20,000 by Despain to set up the meeting, and also $3,000 by Montaigne as his broker's commission. Personal contact with
0: prostitution offenses?
1: None. Note, subject has no personal contact with any crime, hence his A.K.A., the middleman. Sentence serving? Individual or cumulative? Total. Total, all crimes, all counts. 1,588 years. Actual time to parole eligibility? Seven years, four months, 11 days. The Batman examined and re-examined the data. One more question for the computer. Location, Narrowcast. Hellgate Prison, wing number five, tier number three, cell number one. Batman brings up the location on the screen, then commands the probe to switch to thermal video. He sees the prisoner lying in his bunk, and the computer confirms that he is in REM sleep. Alert. Additional data available. Request? Yes. Perry Trauma Scale available. Run? Yes. The Batman's eyes were riveted to the screen. The Perry Trauma Scale was named for Dr. B.D. Perry, shortlisted for next year's International Contribution to Humanity Award for his groundbreaking research into the biochemistry of trauma. Dr. Perry's thesis was that deeply traumatized children process information differently than those not so afflicted. One example is the startle reaction familiar to every social worker. The child who cringes when a hand is raised to wave hello is a child who has learned a raised hand means a blow. Sometimes that learning is buried so deeply that no amount of contrary information will change the reaction to the same stimuli. Perry's work was still in progress, but his trauma scale which measured past trauma recorded, was now used in all child abuse screenings. As the trauma scale ranking is obtained by reading brainwave patterns while a subject is in a sleep state, much of the wind had gone out of the sails of the false allegations movement. The new program had just been installed into the bat computer, and the batman was eager to test it. He waited patiently. Then, superimposed over the thermal image, the screen read, Perry Trauma Scale. B-slash-7-1-slash-C-slash-N-R. The crime fighter quickly translated. B meant the second distinct life stage, somewhere between two and four years of age, depending on the individual. 71 was the degree of severity. C indicated chronic as opposed to episodic. And N.R. stood for not repressed. Something had happened to the middleman when he was a young child. Something deeply traumatic. And whatever it was, it was still on his mind. Batman is the OC Inspector Gadget, hands down. I was surprised at how far outside city limits Vax places Hellgate slash Blackgate Prison. The security of that place is rather daunting. And because it's described as the trash can of, you know, the worst of the criminals, my guess is uh, distance from the city is ideal to keep them away from other citizens. I think in pretty much any other comic or movie or game or whatever of Batman Blackgate prison is within city limits, is it not? Or at least very close to it. And I did a quick search online to see if Blackgate was known as Hellgate anywhere else. Upon a cursory search it just mentioned that Andrew Vax used the name Hellgate for this book. It's also really cool to seeing Batman switch his way of thinking to that of a criminal. He'd make an excellent profiler. Well except for the fact that he doesn't need the job, nor would he be good at following rules, and he might not work well with superiors. And why use a government vehicle when he has the Batmobile? Okay, on second thought, he'd make a terrible profiler, but he makes an excellent vigilante. In this scene, I definitely got my gadget slash detective work fix. We got a little bit of gadgetry in book number one, the novelization of the 89 Batman But we're definitely getting a much broader range of gadgets here, and I absolutely adore it. I don't think we've seen him use any kind of grappling hook or anything yet. So far, everything has been used for surveillance or research. Very cool, very cool. It's also intriguing to see the middleman's traumatic childhood sort of taking an effect on Batman. It's not something he usually considers, but I don't put it past him. I mean, he's hard-nosed, and... Likes to feed people their own kneecaps, but he's not without moments of empathy. No doubt the week he spent with Deborah Kane has given him a peek behind the scenes, but it's still not really much more than a peek. However, I think it's gelling for him how much a person's traumatic childhood can affect who they become as an adult. I mean, Bruce Wayne himself is is an example of that. So far, chapters 1 through 6, I am here for it. This book is really good. Fun fact for Chapter 6. Dogs have been used in law enforcement since the Middle Ages. Paris constables' bloodhounds were used for hunting down outlaws. Bloodhounds used in Scotland were known as sloth dogs, from which we derive the word sleuth. I want the sleuth! You can't handle the sleuth! That does it for Chapter 5 and Chapter 6 of Batman, The Ultimate Evil. Next time, we'll cover chapter 7 and 8. And a huge thank you to Chris for being the first guest star on Rest in Peace Theater. That was a blast. As always, you can contact me on Twitter at BatmanBooks underscore DKP or on Gmail at darknightpros@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Until next time, Gothamites, happy reading! Batman is copyrighted to DC Comics and was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger.